Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people, verses, hadith, etc. They're all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But when you listen to longer form episodes, the notes are meant to be a resource and an aid. Number two, I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday I send out a short email called Coexist Ruminations that shares what I'm working on and reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. If you have ever spent time studying any of the Islamic sciences, one of the patterns that becomes clear is the attention scholars in the past gave to documenting principles, axioms, rules, aphorisms, etc. In almost every discipline, you will find these cataloged, all with the aim of making the study of that particular discipline easy. So, rather than always having to start with a minutia and then making sense of it, students typically learn these principles, which provide important frameworks to make sense of it all. Now, while these principles are usually for students and experts of these fields, I believe that many Muslims seeking to make sense of Islam require their own set of first principles, through which they can approach Islam as a religion and discipline of study, and also draw conclusions that are both at one with the fundamentals of the faith, and also compatible with our current condition. In this series, and at this point I'm not exactly sure how long it's going to be, but I will say at least 10 episodes, I want to highlight some of these first principles that help us create a mental framework through which we can make sense of Islam today. Enjoy. One of the principles that we have that's really important and, and something that we need to sort of double down on and, and emphasize given our current condition is understanding the moment in which we live and therefore how to apply the Qur'an and the Sunnah or the Sharia interchangeable to this moment. So how do we understand the world around us? How do we understand our predicament? And then therefore, how do we apply the Qur'an and the Sunnah to that predicament? So we're going to get into that. But, but to begin, I want to backtrack for a second and differentiate three things that will come up or often come up when we have this discussion. One of them is fiqh. What does that mean? One of them is fatwa. What does that mean? And one of them is the process of adjudication in courts or what in Arabic is called al-qada. What does that mean? What are the similarities and the differences between the three of them? So when somebody says fiqh, you know, or sharia or Islamic law, in this case the three are interchangeable, what does that mean? The sharia or fiqh simply looks at what is the sharia ruling of certain actions as we read the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So it governs human actions because law or, or, or in this case Islamic law governs human actions. It's not belief, that's aqidah, that's something else. This is here, sharia governs actions. And we have five sharia rulings. There's only one of five things that an action can be. One is that it can be wajib, 
It's obligatory. If something is obligatory, that means that if you do it, you are rewarded. And if you don't do it, you could receive a punishment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's what, what, when we say something is wajib or obligatory, that's what it means. It could be mandub. It could be recommended. Meaning if you do that action, you are rewarded. But if you don't do the action, you incur no sin. Like, you know, a sunnah prayer or a sunnah fast. Number three is it could be haram. You know, the, the, our, one of the popular words amongst Muslims. What does the word haram mean? It means if you engage in, an, in this specific act, you could incur a sin and therefore be punishable for it, yawm al-qiyamah. And if you leave it, you are rewarded. Okay, so if you know that okay, lying is haram, I was about to lie and I didn't lie, I got a reward out of it. Number four is it could be makruh, it could be disliked. A disliked action means if you engage in that action, you incur no sin, but if you leave that action, you incur a reward. And number five is it could be mubah, which is permissible and that's neutral. There's neither reward nor sin involved. So these are the five rulings of the sharia, that's it. Every, every action, every conceivable human action through the lens of the sharia will fall under one of these five categories. And what fiqh does is fiqh goes back and looks at the Qur'an and the sunnah and sees what do we understand from the verses of the Qur'an, from the hadith of the Prophet vis-a-vis these actions and therefore we put a label on it. So imagine if we had you know, a huge whiteboard and we had these like sticky notes that had these five rulings. You know, what's, uh, what's the sticker that goes with prayer? Okay, the, the five prayers, that's wajib. You know, what's the sticker that goes with lying? Okay, that's haram. What's the sticker that goes with eating uh, food that has garlic and onions and then going to the mosque? That's actually a, an issue in the sharia. That's disliked for obvious reasons. But we still haven't gotten that message, but it's still disliked. So on and so forth. So that's what fiqh is. But that's really only one, and that's very important, and it takes, uh, I'm not underestimating or, or trying to undersell that. This is very, very important. It takes a, it's, it's much more complicated than that. But that's one aspect out of what we are going to speak about uh, here. And you need to learn Arabic, and you need to you know, study how the different madhabs look at the principles of understanding the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So it's very complicated. But it's insular, in the sense that it's devoid of reality. Not in a bad way. That's not the job of fiqh. The job of fiqh is to put those stickers, those five stickers, on every single action. And how many issues of law does the sharia have? We have about two million. In our history of Islamic law, we have about two million points of law that the jurists from the beginning of Islam till now have debated and talked about. So it's, it's quite extensive. It's, it's a huge undertaking and you know people can dedicate their entire lives lives to it that's fiqh so if you go and you ask a faqih a question you have to understand that that's the background of that person they're think you think about them in like a library with you know tens of thousands of books a huge whiteboard metaphorically and these five stickers putting the stickers on all of these issues they might not have any idea about how you live your life or what life is like outside of even the library. You know, they're very academic and very scholarly and that's their job. Now what's the job of the mufti? The mufti, without doubt, has to be a faqih, has to be a person that understands where those rulings are. 
But the Mufti adds two more components to the equation, which is after knowing what the Qur'an and the Sunnah say about said action, they also need to analyze with the same scrutiny the person that's asking's condition or predicament. So they need to understand where this person is coming from, as we say in English. You know, do you understand where I'm coming from? That's, that's what the Mufti essentially is doing. He has to understand the person that's the Mustafti, which is the Arabic word for the person coming to the Mufti for a question. The Mufti's job and the, the burden is on the Mufti is to understand where this person is coming from. Which is why, for example, part of the rules of that exchange, if a woman wears niqab, if a woman's face is covered, when she goes and sits with the mufti, she must remove the niqab. The mufti has to ask her to remove the niqab. Because he has to, well, he has to see, is it a woman in, in, indeed? And is she who she says she is? Sometimes she'll have to present an ID. And you know, you have to read the person. That's essentially what you, you, know, you have to be trained how to do. How, can you tell if the person is lying, not lying? You know, is the person genuine? Are there tears? Are they crocodile tears? You know, etc. So that's part of the process. <clears throat> so with equal uh, detail and equal dedication to understanding the Qur'an and the Sunnah, the Mufti needs to also understand the predicament of the person that's coming. That's the second edition. The third edition is how do you then take what we understood from the Qur'an and the Sunnah and apply it to the predicament of the person. And that's a third step. Okay, and we'll come back to that uh, in a second. Then what is the difference between the mufti and a judge? Here I'm talking about a sharia court judge. And some countries still have them, but nonetheless it's, it's, uh, it's a position that existed and kind of exists. A sharia court judge. What is the, the difference between the mufti and the judge? The, the judge has to be knowledgeable in fiqh without doubt, because a judge in a sharia court that is, can't go against the consensus of the ummah. So if there's a consensus on a particular action or a particular issue, the judge can't go against that. Because to go against consensus, as I've mentioned before, is essentially to go against Islam. So part of our belief as Sunni Muslims is that consensus is binding from generation to generation. Or what we more commonly call in English precedent. If there's precedent on an issue, and everybody in the past agreed, then we... Okay, then it's binding upon us as well. So, the judge can't go against that, but as we've discussed also previously, there is plurality in Islamic law. There's actually a lot of plurality. There's a lot of plural opinions. Some people say this, some people say that. One issue might have five opinions. Now, the judge has the authority to choose whichever position he or she finds appropriate for that predicament, which is sort of what the Mufti does as well. So that's kind of similar. But there are two things that distinguish the judge from the Mufti. The first is that the judge's ruling is binding, whereas the Mufti's ruling is not binding. So if you go and you ask a Mufti for a fatwa, the fatwa by definition is a non-binding legal opinion. But if you go to the court, as you could surmise, the opinion of the judge is binding. So that's one difference. The second difference is as the Mufti's job is to understand the predicament and link the Qur'an and Sunnah to the predicament, the Mufti is confined by the predicament of the person coming to them. 
but the judge is not. The judge can change the predicament. So, two people come in a, in a theoretical scenario, come to the judge, and they are arguing over a piece of land. Each has their proof that the land belongs to them. Each presents some proof that the land belongs to them. The judge rules that the land belongs to one and not the other. So the judge changed the reality, changed the predicament. And that is binding, that now the, the land has to be titled to so-and-so, not so-and-so. That's what I mean by changing the reality. Or if there's a dispute between husband and wife, uh, and the husband uh, claims that he did not divorce his wife, and the wife claims that no, he divorced her. So now they're in dispute, and they go and they argue, and they present evidence to the judge. The judge can change the marital status and say, no, the man is wrong, you are divorced. And even though if the man swears after that, that no, I divorced my wife, the fact that the judge ruled, that becomes binding. So that, that the judge can change the reality. Okay? So that's, that's a second difference between the judge, uh, the Sharia judge, and the Mufti. And in our own legal system, I mean, you can kind of understand that, um, you know, the binding nature of the judge. And again, we're just speaking in abstract. I mean, of course, there's appeals and higher courts and lower courts. I understand all of that. I'm just trying to make things simple. So if I jump back to the Mufti part for a second, because this will also apply to a judge, I began by saying one of the principles that we really need to double down on is understanding our current predicament. You know, understanding the time and the age in which we live in. And this is one of the most urgent issues that we have as a community, whether it's locally or nationally or globally. A lot of times people will say, well, Islam has got to keep up, Islam has got to change, we got to reform Islam, we need a reformation. So you hear things like that. And I think that while, let's just assume that those are all well-intentioned uh, statements, what people really are trying to say is this issue that we're talking about, is that we have to find a more compatible way in which we apply Islam to our time, our age, our predicament. And that is an essential part of the mufti issuing their legal opinion, or as we just previously said, or a judge adjudicating a case is that not only is it enough to simply to understand what the Qur'an says about so-and-so or the hadith say about so-and-so, you must be able to take that and bring it into the current moment. So rather than give an example, let me state it in a simple abstract way. If we believe that the Qur'an is the eternal uncreated word of God, which is the Sunni definition of the Qur'an, meaning that the Qur'an is, a, is the eternal speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's a trait of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We all agree that Allah has no beginning and has no end. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is eternal and absolute and omniscient and omnipotent, all of that. That's what we believe about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But the time that we live in right now, whatever the year is that we live in right now, or the place, the region that we live in right now, or the time or the town that we live in right now, it's the exact opposite. It's not eternal. It has a beginning and it's going to have an end. It's always changing. You know, Allah doesn't change. And it's rapid, especially in the day and age. So I'm reading Allah's words that are eternal and outside of time, but I'm reading them in time, which is me right now. What do I do with this ayah right now? So you can understand how that exchange 
will create friction sometimes. And the job of the mufti is to smooth out that friction and make that process seamless. So that the Qur'an and the Sunnah or Islam, we can say, is valid for every time and every place and every circumstance. Because that's also one of our beliefs. So if we say and we believe, and we believe that it is true that Islam is valid for all time and all place and all circumstance and all people, etc. It must therefore mean that the way we interpret and apply the Qur'an and Sunnah will change vis-a-vis the changing of time and place and people and circumstance. So that's why the job of the mufti is so difficult, or the job of the, of the judge is so difficult, sharia judge is so difficult. And maybe that's per- perhaps why we don't have so many of them, because it's really difficult. It's enough just to learn the fiqh by itself and put those sticky notes on all of the, all of the issues. But to also have the same depth of knowledge of the here and now. What is the here and now? It could be the world of things. Somebody comes to a mufti and they want to ask him about, about this thing. You know, people, for example, that have diabetes and they have uh, machines that, uh, I don't know the technical term of them right now, it's escaping my head, but they have the, the machine that, that gives them the insulin constantly. So it's constantly hooked, hooked to them. You know, what does that mean for the person, the Muslim person that has that, that's fasting? Can they fast? Can they not fast? Okay. Quran and Sunnah, we know what that is, but what is the here and now? So that thing, the mufti's got to understand what that thing is. So the mufti has to ask for the spec sheet, you know, get a like sample of the machine, sit and look at it. Maybe they don't understand. They call up the physician. The physician comes and explains and demos the machine. So that transaction has to happen because there's the world of things. And every, every you know, six months, there's a new thing. There's a new widget. You know, whether it's fidget spinners or whether it's temporary tattoos or, or whatever. I mean, there's all these things that are, who knows, maybe that's even outdated. Uh, if you're hearing this, maybe there's even more things that I don't know about. But there are all these things that are coming out. So there's the world of things. The mufti needs to understand that. There's also the world of people. People are different. We have different cultures. Even though, we, you know, the world is so small, global village, etc. Yeah, that's true, but... There's also different cultures. Something that is culturally accepted in the United States might not be culturally accepted, well, most likely is not culturally accepted in other parts of the world that are quote-unquote more conservative, and things like that. So the mufti, for a, a popular example, one that I, I witnessed myself, actually it's even in the books of fiqh, is that in Egypt, where I studied for a time uh, this science, it is... A certain type of custom when a man is going to marry a woman of the exchanging of dowry and gifts and things like that. But that culture doesn't exist at the time in Syria, which is, you know, if you could fly straight over Israel, it would be a very short flight. But, you, you know, because of the air rights and stuff, you have to go around the sea, so it's a little bit long. But it's a very short flight. But even in that distance, the culture and Cairo, when the books of fiqh that discuss this issue were written, you know, in the 19th century, even at that time, the culture was different between these two cities, even though you could journey, you know, fairly short amount of time between them. So just because we're all Muslim, or, or these are all Muslim-majority countries, does not necessarily mean that the people are the same, that they think the same, that they eat the same, that they dress the same. That, so the world of people is also part of understanding the person's predicament. So when, a, when, when somebody comes, like a couple, and there's like a, a problem in the marriage, 
It also is important and incumbent upon the Mufti to understand where are they coming from, literally. Is there some cultural thing that I'm not seeing? Because I know for me and my wife, certain things are accepted and certain things are not accepted. But if somebody comes to me, I can't judge from what I think is normal. I have to understand where that person is coming from. There's also the world of occurrences, current events, and recent history. Whether there's conflict somewhere, um, whether there's tragedy somewhere, whether there's a natural disaster somewhere, all of these things will impact the way that the Mufti understands the person's predicament and therefore how to apply the Qur'an and the Sunnah to that predicament. You know, somebody, uh, a Rohingya Muslim, fleeing for their life is very different than one of us getting stuck at the airport for an extra hour because the flight is delayed. The necessity, quote-unquote, of the Rohingya Muslim fleeing for their life is, is life and death. And even though we are discomforted by the delay, it's not life and death. Even though we might think, oh my God, my life is over, I'm going to miss the flight and I'm going to miss my connecting flight. And so, for, so the Mufti has to understand that, has to understand the world of where those people are coming from. And there's also the world of thought and ideas. And this is perhaps one of the most challenging things because there is now a... A, the, the dominant culture is so rapidly expanding and so rapidly influencing because of the interconnectedness of, of culture now that people that are asked, muftis that are asked these type of sharia questions also need to be in the know with what's happening and what's being said in the world of ideas. There are a lot of things that are, are put out there that have behind them deeper roots, deeper paradigms. Those paradigms need to be understood. This is just a, a sample. I mean, there's, there's many more things that if we, if we got into it. But the point is, is that it's not enough just to know, to memorize the verses of the Qur'an that deal with the Sharia and memorize the Hadith that deal with the Sharia and then go on your merry way. No, you have to also understand the predicament, the moment the current moment that people are living in, and yourself included. And that's the job of the mufti. Now the burden is on the mufti. The burden is on the people that, that take up this you know, craft to be able to link these two together. That's an essential component. And, and if we believe firmly that, Quran is, that Islam is valid rather for all time and place and circumstance, etc., we will also believe and agree with the following statement that therefore Islam should be easily applicable and compatible with all of our current predicaments. And if somehow somebody has given, an, given us an Islam or an interpretation of Islam that is not, then something has gone wrong. And that's usually when the Mufti knows they've done something wrong. So we have, we've spoken about previously, the meta-principles of the Sharia. That's also part of what the Mufti needs to make sure they don't violate. You can't harm somebody and cause reciprocating harm. You know, la darar wa la darar, which itself is a hadith, but it's also a principle of, of the Sharia. So the Mufti can't issue a fatwa that's going to cause harm to the person or harm to the people or, or, or around them, for example. So the Mufti's really got to think, and there are levels of issuing the fatwa. I don't necessarily want to get into today, but there's about four levels or stages rather of how the mufti goes through issuing the fatwa. Some people are very good at it, they can just do it in, in a moment. 
but, but the more complicated issues, they require a lot of study and a lot of consultation to go through these stages to make sure that they really understand what is being said. You know, a very common issue, which for me is a settled issue, but people still ask it, is, you know, the issue of bank interest. The problem with people saying that bank interest is haram is not that they misunderstand what riba is in the Quran, in the Islamic sources. They don't understand what interest is in the modern banking system or the nature of money. So this is a, a very, uh, probably an example that everyone can, you know, wrap their head around. Because people have called bank interest riba for so long, then people just, if somebody says, oh, what's the ruling on, on interest? They say, a'udhu billah, that's haram. That's like if you brought a cow and you kept calling it a pig for years and years and years and years, and they said, I'm going to go eat this uh, pig. Astaghfirullah, pig is haram. You're right, of course, we can't eat the pig. But that's not a pig, it's a cow. It's the same thing. So part of understanding uh, part of rather making an, an Islam or an interpretation that makes sense is understanding what that thing is. That bank interest is not riba, it's, it's interest. It looks like riba, but it's not. Money is not gold and silver. It's different. It's paper. It's fiat currency, etc., etc. Do we have something in the past? Did somebody in the past talk about what happens when we have paper money? And we find, yes, they, they talked about that. They talked about what happens if we have simply paper currency that's not backed by gold and silver that there's no riba in that, in that instrument of, cur of money, for example. So this is not about understanding riba, it's about understanding the thing itself. So understanding the thing is very important, and the muftis got to really take their time and investigate and understand, so that when they go back to the whiteboard and they find all of their stickies on all of those issues, they know the right one to give to that person, to make Islam easy, to make their life easy. So usually the person is supposed to come out of the mufti's office or sitting with the mufti happy, you know, with joys of tears. But if the person, you know, comes out screaming and, and upset, you know, or, or gets kicked out, I've seen that happen before, I've seen people getting kicked out of the mufti's office, then you know something's gone wrong. You know, there's something wrong in the transaction. <coughs> you know, the Prophet, peace be upon him, he said, you know, the, the best type of religion is that that has ease in it. Allah says in the Qur'an, وَمَا أَنزَلْنَا الْقُرْآنَ عَلَيْكَ لِتَشْقَى We haven't revealed the Qur'an for you to be miserable. So Islam is supposed to uplift us, supposed to help us, supposed to make us happy. So that's a matter principle in itself, to be happy with one's Islam. That doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. Sometimes you have to go against what your nafs wants. But Islam has to, there has to be a mechanism to make that transaction easy. And it's one of the key components of this mechanism is what we're talking about now, which is understanding the moment. Allahu Akbar.